but a preacher or a minister of the gospel. So it was because of Pastor Banks' love, how he poured into me that I'm here right now. So I thank you so very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And while you are clapping, I have to, have to, have to salute my partner, my road dog, my ride or die chick, Salvation Manadam. <laughs> <laughs> like you would never know the, how tough that journey was but also how easy it was to be on that journey because I had somebody by my side that was encouraging me every step of the way so thank you so very much I also want to give a shout out to one of my mentors in the faith um, and back in 96 when I had no clue as to what this whole thing about, what this whole thing is about, about ministering the word of God and about being among the community and stuff. I mean, this guy right here was very pivotal in my walk. And I have to salute him because he's here today. I didn't know he was going to show up, but he's here and his name is Moselle Darton. He's right there. <laughs> Before I knew anything about Christian hip-hop, this brother right here introduced me to it. He was the first Christian hip-hop artist that I've ever met. First one. And he brought his wife with him, Maisha Darden. Also, he brought his son, Noah. <laughs> it's one of the coolest families you will ever meet. Also, a sister of mine who happened to show up, and I'm so enthusiastic to see her today. Um, her name is Nicole. She's also a fellow poet. She's also a fellow poet. Nicole, the goddess, Wilson, she's in the building. Thank you so very much for showing up. And I just want to thank you, World Outreach Church, because honestly, being away from here, we were thinking about you every, every, every day. This is our home. You know, we've been, a, we've been to several other churches, but this right here is our home. This is where we feel comfortable. This is where we feel like we can take off our shoes and, and kick back. Like we're watching, like, the NFL Super Bowl or something. This is home. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for having us here. Um, without further ado, let's open up to John chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 9 to 13. John chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. And it reads, There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Verse 11 says that he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Verse 13 says, who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's open up with prayer. Father God, we just thank you. Yahweh, we glorify you for just making a moment like this where we can bask in your presence and just 
to know who you are. And not only to know who you are, but through you know who we are. Because it's you who have called us to be a part of this global thing that you are doing, in which you are waking up the earth to know of your presence, to know of your glory, to know of who you are, that you called us to partner with you on this amazing journey. So we thank you. We glorify you. We give you praise. And Father God, we just pray that you will give me the ability to speak your word, to speak your heart, to speak your mandate so that we can now go out and affect change in our society. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 We have been on this journey this year of discussing the importance of identity. If you remember, or if you've been here for a while, you know that there's been two major themes that we've been talking about, grace and identity, and how those two things are connected. One of the most important possessions that any human being has is their identity. Your identity is everything. Just mentioning who you are and who you are related to can provide you the access to some of the most exclusive memberships in society. Our identity is our reputation and our access card to the various spheres of influence. One of the biggest lies that I remember being told when I was watching the Sprite commercial back in the days was that image is nothing, but thirst is everything. And the reason why that's the biggest lie, even though it was a great marketing technique that made uh, Sprite what it is today, is that your image dictates your thirst. And so your identity is pivotal in how you walk, how you carry yourself, how you conduct your very being. Your identity is everything. The daughters of President Obama, Sasha and Malia, just on the basis of the identity of their father, will have access to certain luxuries in life, not because they have labored or toiled for it. Just by the fact that they are the daughters of a president, they can go places that you and I would have a difficult time getting into. The children of Dr. Martin Luther King, to this very day, no matter where they go, just on the basis of the identity of their father, command a certain type of respect when they enter into the building. Not because they marched with their father, not because they participated in any of the struggles that their father had participated in, but the simple fact that they are children of Dr. Martin Luther King. That legacy follows them no matter where they go. Your identity can prepare you in life or delay your progress. I remember watching a documentary about Jeffrey Dahmer. And if you remember, Jeffrey Dahmer was a very sadistic, very evil intention cannibal. He ate people. When they arrested him and went into his house, they found a refrigerator with body parts in it. That's how nasty his lifestyle was. And as a result of that damage to his image or his identity, his very own brother had to change his last name in order to have a normal life. Because anywhere that name Dahmer went, the idea of this cannibal, this sadistic person was conjured up. So therefore, in order to have some aspect of normalcy, he had to change his last name. 
Your identity is so crucial that according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, it cost Americans $15.4 billion in 2014 in losses associated with identity theft, which is down significantly from, get this, $27.4 billion in 2012. Your identity is costly. It will cost so we understand by default that our identity is so important that we will go the extra mile to make sure that we protect it. Identity is defined, according to Webster, as the distinguishing character or personality of an individual. Well, if identity is a big deal in the world, then what does identity mean in the kingdom of God? This message is geared towards helping us to understand our God, Yahweh, and the person of his son, Yeshua, and how he has given us the rights to take his identity as our own, and that it is our responsibility to exercise this identity. So ultimately, the mission of God has never changed, and with the past messages concerning identity, hopefully you will capture the main theme of God throughout Scripture, which is to proclaim his name throughout the earth. Amen. That's right. Psalms chapter 105, verse 1, says this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds amongst the peoples. Exodus chapter 9, verse 16 says this, But indeed, for this reason I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power, in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. Ezekiel 39, verse 7, you can turn right here. Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 7. And when you get there, say amen. Ezekiel 39 verse 7 says that my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore and that the nations will know that I am the Lord the Holy One in Israel. Now this is where my preference for the Hebrew language and context and perspective actually kicks in because in the English translation you see the phrase the Lord. And when you see the, the word the Lord or the phrase the Lord, where the Lord is in all caps, it's an indicator that this is a generic insertion for the actual name of God, which is Yahweh. So in the actual readings, you will, the reading would say that my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my, my holy name be profaned anymore. The nations will know that I am Yahweh, the Holy One of, in Israel. So God wants us to make his name Yahweh great among the nations. We were singing, how great is our God. Sing with us, how great is our God. The world will see how great is our God, how great is our God. That name Yahweh, he wants to see it cover the entire earth. That all the nations will know that Yahweh is this great God. We talked about Cuba early. And how in Cuba you have all these different religions, Orisha and, and, and Catholicism and all these different faiths that impact Cuba to this very day. Well, communism will accept that. But my prayer is that communism will diminish so that the name of Yahweh will be made great in Cuba. Isaiah 42 verse 8 says that I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. 
In other words, I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. So I will show you later that through his son, we now have a right to his name. So as the church, the body of Christ, this messianic community, and the very tangible expression of the kingdom of God, we have been called to participate in the mission of proclaiming his name. God is not going to work through magic. He's not going to work through make-believe. He's going to work through his people. He's going to work through us as believers. However, we must see ourselves as the people, the children, the sons of God. So the mission of God is clear throughout the Bible, which is to make his name great. And the first chapter of John opens up as a great introduction to the identity of the word in which we will later come to know as Jesus, Yeshua. So before we can expound on, the, on what we read of John chapter 1 verses 9 to 13, we must understand the foundation that John the writer has laid. So it opens up. In the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, it begins with identifying the word, and it ends with the saying that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So you see this kind of this sandwich thing. If you know, if you ever ate at McDonald's, right, and you order like a Big Mac or a quarter pounder with cheese, I know it's fake meat, but dwell with me, work with me. <laughs> that is like the best taste in fake meat I ever had. I don't care what anybody say. <laughs> But at McDonald's, you have like the, the like you have like on, on, on the Big Mac, you have like the bread, right? And you have the bread, which, is, which John lays out is in the beginning is the word. And then under the bread, you have the lettuce and the tomatoes, and then you have another bread. So John, again, adds on to this whole concept of this, this image of who the word is. But right smack dab in the middle of this sandwich, which is the tastiest part, which is the juiciest part, is John bringing out this concept of the fact that we are being called children of God because of the word. So in the beginning was the word, and in the middle, he gives us the right to become children of God, and then in verse 14, he ends with the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's a whole, con- it's a whole sandwich concept. And just on that note, I'm hungry right now. You know? So this is going to be a very short message. <laughs> so it's like John is saying that before you can know your identity in the Messiah, in Christ, you must first know the distinguishing character or the personality of the word. John chapter 1 states, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. So when you look at John chapter 1, the question becomes, well, what is this word? The Greek word for this word, word, is this word logos. You catch that? So where you see the word is this word logos. In the Greek culture and philosophy, the logos is seen as the unifying principle or the mediation between the unknowable God and the world. Many Greek philosophers believed that the spiritual things and the material things are, that are physical should not mix. And so Logos was believed to be how God connected with man through reason and ideas. This is why the Greeks place a high value on knowledge, because in their mindset, knowledge is their access to God, because they felt that they were too, that they were too dirty to have any access to God. So they believed that through, through knowledge, they had access to God. The writer of John connected 
the concept of the logos with the Hebrew concept of the word of the Lord, which in, in, in the Aramaic is Memra, M-E-M-R-A. That is the Aramaic, Aramaic word for, for our understanding of the logos. And this concept, the word of the Lord, was the manifestation of God himself appearing to prophets in dreams, visions, and sometimes in the physical, for example. Hold your place in John 1, and let's go to Psalms chapter 33, verse 4. Psalms 33, verse 4. It says, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. So here you see how the word of the Lord is also identified with a personality. Let's look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 4. Genesis chapter 15, verse 4. It says, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but the one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. So here it is, another example of how the word of the Lord, an actual personality, came to Abraham to tell him that your servant is not going to be the one to inherit your, 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 your inheritance. It will actually be the son from your very body. So the Hebrew scripture emphasizes the word of the Lord using indications of a personality. The Hebrews believed that the presence of God was above comprehension and therefore did not consider themselves worthy to speak with God, but that God made himself comprehensible to them through the person of the word. So John the writer marries the Hebrew concept of the word as a mediator with the Greek concept of the logos as the unifying principle or mediator and then says this word, this unifying principle and mediator was with God. That word with is the Greek word pros, which means to interface with or literally face to face. So in other words, this word that was with God, the idea here is that the, the, the word was face to face engaging the presence of God in eternity. And the concept is that there is some kind of intimacy that is being seen between the word and God. If you can kind of go with me in your mind to, for some of you who are married on the day that you got married, when you looked at your spouse in, your fa- in, her, in their face, in my case, I looked at my wife in her face, and I made promises, but it was face-to-face. It was a form of intimacy. It was a form of communication. I was engaging with her face-to-face, and because of how good I looked, she couldn't resist it. She <laughs> I'll let her tell her other side of the story later. But there was this this intimacy, there was this communion that took place. That's the idea of the word with God. And then 
And on that day, oh, sorry. And then John takes it further by saying that this word, this unifying principle and mediator was with God. Then John continues to build upon this by saying that the word whom he conceptualizes as a unifying principle to the Greeks and the mediator of God to the Jews who was face to face with God is God. And he's not only is he God, but he is the creator. He is life and he is the light of the world. John chapter 1, verse 6 to 8. John chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 6 to 8. It says that John the Baptist was sent from God to testify concerning the light. If you can recall that God through the prophet of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, that, 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 um, that there would be a voice calling out from the wilderness that would metaphorically roll out the red carpet for Yahweh. So the purpose of the voice in the wilderness was to let everybody know or was to make preparation for the arrival of Yahweh himself. So also God through the prophet Malachi. In Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, we can actually go there as well. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, it states this. It says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. So here it is. God is speaking in the first person, but then he also speaks in the third person. He says that this messenger is is basically going to prepare the way for me. But when you see me coming, you're going to see a hymn. And this hymn is going to go to his temple. That's how you know this is the person I've been speaking of. That's the reason why in the ministry of Jesus, he's always talking about going to Jerusalem, always talking about going to the temple. Why? Because he's walking in the fulfillment of this prophecy. So the gospel of John, as well as both Matthew and Luke, testified that John the Baptist is the one who has this awesome responsibility of getting the hearts of the people ready for the personal, personal visitation of Yahweh. And so when John the Baptist identifies himself as the one who cries out in the wilderness, this eventually raises the alarm for those who are familiar with the law and the prophets, most notably the religious leaders. This is a very climatic, um, climatic moment in historical history. In prophetic history, rather, because if you remember, John the Baptist is the son of Zechariah, who is a priest. So by law, he's not supposed to be baptizing and preaching in the wilderness. His responsibility when he grew up was to actually go to the temple and baptize and preach there. So not only is he baptizing in the wilderness, but he is baptizing and preaching the kingdom of heaven at this very historical place, the River Jordan. Why is the River Jordan so, his, uh, so significant? Because when Israel as a nation came to the promised land, they came through the Jordan. Joshua, who is the Old Testament figure or type of the New Testament Jesus, carried the people into the promised land through the river Jordan. So here is John the Baptist baptizing at the same river Jordan with the, with the in the mind or giving the mindset that there's a great arrival that is coming. He's about to shake up 
the very foundations of what the uh, uh, of the religious order at that time, because it wasn't because the temple itself did not have the same type of significance as as it once did. It now became a commercial industry. It was a place where you seen all these different activities of people who wanted to pray, who wanted to pray to God, but also there was people who were selling um, items inside the, the outer courts. And so it didn't have the same type of uh, uh, commercial, it didn't have the same type of appeal. It became a, a place of commercial interest. So here it is, John doing something completely different, and this is where God does. God doesn't do the same thing over and over because that's what tradition says. God does something completely different. So instead of John being in the temple, he's out in the wilderness, making way for the very presence of the Messiah. And so this led the religious, uh, religious leaders who are seeing this asking, asking him a question. Are you the Messiah? To which John says, no, I am not. I'm just the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Simply put, God being, being a God of order and patterns doesn't just throw Jesus on the scene. He builds upon the pattern by giving, Israelites, giving the Israelites a prophet by the name of John the Baptist who may who the very uh, reason, whose very reason for breathing is to bear witness to the fact that Jesus is Yahweh and to validate the ministry of Jesus. Which is, if you would ask me, I personally think that this is, this is evidence of John's humility. Because then the reality is, is that if I knew that my name or the, something that I was doing was associated with something in, in, in Scripture that was a prophecy, that I'm participating in this prophecy, I would have actually made uh, business cards to let everybody know that, hey, I'm somebody you need to know. The Messiah is coming. I'm preparing the way for the Messiah. If you want VIP seats, come see me. I'll be honest, it could have been a good business. But John is very humble. When they asked him, who are you? Are you the Messiah? He says, no, I'm not. Are you Elijah? Oh, no, I'm not. Are you one of the prophets? He says, no, I'm not. I'm just the one crying out in the wilderness. I would have started out a John the Baptist, Inc. John the Baptist, Incorporated. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to John chapter 1 verse 6 to 8 it says there came a man sent from God whose name was John he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him he John that is was not the light but he came to testify about the light the word who was revealed to us as Yeshua, Yahweh, the mediator, the unifying principle is identified as the true light. He is the divine illumination, the revealer of truth, who has come to impart truth and the wisdom of salvation. Verse 9 says, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. So not only does the word of God impart truth and the wisdom as the true light, but to develop the deep, but to reveal the deep darkness within us. 
We have fallen short of God's grace. We of ourselves are inadequate, insufficient, deficient. We're lost. We're shattered. We're battered by iniquities and transgressions, partakers of wickedness, lovers of darkness. We have a, prefer- we have a preference for evil things. We are anti-God. We are contrary to him. That is who we are in a nutshell, apart from the very grace of God. That is our natural identity. You want to get a a really simple definition of grace? God's ability. Apart from God's ability, we are lost. Apart from God's ability, we are without hope. But the true light connects us to the very presence of God. He enlightens us. Just this week. Dylan Roof, I'm pretty sure a lot of you have heard that name over and over. A young man in South Carolina was found guilty of murdering nine black people in a church just as they were beginning to pray based on racist views. By this very act of evilness, he has officially joined the list of the most hated men in American history. By worldly standards, if I was to ask you, what do you think he's deserving of? Every one of you would probably say he's deserving of death. That is the reality. And as tough as it may sound, we are no better than him because we have lived in denial of God. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 6, the first part of 23 says that the wages of sin is death. That's the reality. So if you want to condemn Dylan Roof, I completely understand. But according to the eternal rule book, in the eyes of God, you are just as guilty. Verse 11, John chapter 1, verse 11, it says that he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, it says that he was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, he was continuously rejected, mainly at the persuasion of the Jewish religious elite. Matthew chapter 27, verse 20 states, but the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. This is a very ironic thing. Let me tell you why it's ironic. The name Barabbas means son of the father. Jesus, who is the son of God, the father, was executed on the, base of, on the basis of claiming that he is the son of God, the father. But Barabbas, whose name means son of the father, was let go. Verse 12, John chapter 1 says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, 
And this is the pinnacle of it all. This verse, verse 12, is the pinnacle of it all. Because verse 13 says, who were born, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what does it mean to be a child of God? One that is born, not of blood, not of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The very book of John in its totality was written to provide validation that Yeshua, whom we know as Jesus, is not only the long-awaited and promised Messiah, but the only begotten Son of God himself. John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31 states, Therefore, many other signs, therefore, among many other signs, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in his book, but these have been get written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Verse 12 is the meat in John's subject concerning the identity of the word. In between his introduction of the word as the creator, the life, as well as the true light of the world, Verse 13, which says, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. John, the writer of this gospel, now shows us that we as believers are now connected to the identity of the word. It says that for those who received him, for as many as, as that would lay hold of his word and believe in his name, scripture says that he gave them the rights to become children of God. Paul puts it this way. Romans chapter 8, 15 to 17. Romans chapter 8, 15 to 17 says that for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. We have been given the right to become children of God. We have been given a new identity. We have access to his identity as our own identity. The word for right, R-I-G-H-T, in John chapter 1 verse 12 is the Greek word esousia meaning legal authority, which is the ability or strength with which one is endued, which he either possesses or exercises. You have the legal authority to become children of God through the adoption of sonship made possible through the word who is Yeshua. You have the legal authority. There's another word for authority in the Bible, authenteo, which is an abuse or should I say a usurping of authority. So you have two types of authority in the Greek in the New Testament. You have esousia, which is legal authority, and you have authenteo, which is a usurping of authority. And there's only one time in which Paul communicates this concept of authenteo, which is found in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 when it talks about uh, women who in those times were propagating myths in the church of Ephesus. Paul said that they were usurping authority. They didn't have the rights to teach the word. So he used the word authentheo. But in, our, in regards to us, 
having the legal authority, we, the word that is being used is exousia. When Christ, when Christ was ready to ascend, he says that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, exousia. And what did Christ do with that authority? Gave it to us. Amen. So you have the legal authority to become children of God through the adoption of sonship made possible through the word who is Yeshua. To be a son in the Hebrew context comes with responsibilities. The word son in the Hebrew is the word Ben, like Uncle Ben's minute rice. Ben. <laughs> I told you I'm hungry. I'm thinking of food right there. Ben, B-E-N, is the same word for like Benjamin, son of my right. So Ben is a word that is in the Hebrew means one who builds or continues the family or home. The son or a son is seen as the building stone of the family. The name of a family cannot continue without sons. This is why there is a high value placed on having sons in the Middle East, East cultures. A son, having a son is everything because that means that the legacy of that house, the legacy of that name continues. Without having a son, the name that you carry, there's a possibility it may diminish. It may not exist in the earth for too long. That DNA that passes through, that would pass through um, the son, it helps, it basically, it continues. It helps to continue that family. It helps to continue, it makes the, you know, from the family you have a clan. You, from a clan you have a tribe. From a tribe you have a nation. So that, that seed, that being a son was extremely important. In the spiritual, Yeshua is the only begotten son of God. Only begotten in the Greek is the word monogenes, M-O-N-O-G-E-N-E-S, like how we get the word genealogy, monogenes. And it means only kind or unique. So when Jesus says that I am the only begotten son of God, or he says that for God so loved this world that he sent his only begotten son, what he is doing is basically saying that he has sent, he has sent his unique son. He has sent me. I'm the only one that exists. I have the same nature of the father, but I'm the only one that exists. Angels are called sons of God in the Bible. Kings are also called sons of God, but Jesus is the only begotten son of God. It's only him, no one else. He is the only son of God who is building the family of God. And by adopting us into the status of sonship, we have the legal rights to exercise his identity. We are co-heirs with the kingdom. Basically what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 18, chapter 8, verse 17. Sonship in the spiritual sense does not mean maleship. Women are part of the sonship and are called as well to build the family of God. So don't think that because I'm a lady, I have no part in the sonship. You have a very big role to play in the concept of sonship. The very first people to evangelize in the Bible were women. Not men. Men were hiding, but the women came out. <laughs> you know? <laughs> The women were the ones who came to the, came to the grave to see if he was there. Where were the men? He died. We don't know nothing about him. <laughs> we going about our own business. 
But the ladies cared. The ladies showed up. So if you die, don't think the brothers is coming to help you. <laughs> you better have some great relationship with women in your life. Uh, at least I hope the brothers will show up. But, <laughs> but brothers don't have a good track record for showing up. So <laughs> but all the resources of the Father is at our disposal so that together we can proclaim the name of God throughout all the earth. My son Israel doesn't have to ask if he can come into my house. My house is his house because he is my son. Some of you, on the other hand, I'm going to need to get a phone call, a text, a couple of days in advance, email. You can tag me by Facebook, Snapchat. I need to know that you're coming before you come. My son, on the other hand, he has all access, all rights. Bible says that we can approach the, we can with confidence approach the throne of grace. Why? Because we are his sons. We have the rights to approach his grace, approach his throne. We don't have to fear anything. Why? Because through grace, we have now been elevated. We have a new status. We have our identity in him. I remember a song that Beyonce was singing with, uh, with Jay-Z, and it was called, Let Me Upgrade You. Guess what? God is saying, let me upgrade you. He's upgrading you to a new status. Oh, come on. I know we got some beehivers up in here. Y'all see, like, you see, church folks like to act. Church folks like to act. I know that somebody got a, J, uh, got a Beyonce CD in their house. I'm <laughs> be acting. <laughs> so how do we exercise our identity in him? There's three things. We exercise our identity by number one. We have to spend time in prayer because Jesus, as the Son of God, spent time in prayer. Amen. Number two, we must communicate with each other and to the world as children of God. Our words must convey forgiveness, grace, love, and most importantly, affirm our identity. Every time the world hears us talk, we should sound like we are children of God. Number three, we are to carry ourselves as sons of God in our motives and our actions. Amen. So three things. We have to spend time in prayer because our, our Lord and Savior, he spent time in prayer. We must communicate with each other. And three, we must carry ourselves as sons of God in motives and actions. So let's deal with number one, spending time in prayer. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Luke chapter 6, verse 12, and it says this. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Mark chapter 6, verse 45 to 46. Mark chapter 6, verse 45 to 46. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. 
After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. So we see that in the very life of Jesus, who is the only begotten son of God, who really, in a sense, if you want to be, he doesn't need to pray. But in his humanity, he took out time to commune with the Father. So guess what our responsibility is? We are not as powerful as Jesus. Those things have been given. His power has been given to us through sonship. So we also must, we also must demonstrate what he's demonstrated. We must pray to the Father. We must commune with the Father. How are we going to know what the Father's heart is if we don't talk to the Father? It's not about just going to God saying, oh, God, I need this. I, I need that new Bentley that came out. I need that new iPhone. I, no, it's about finding out, God, what is on your heart? Amen. Father, what do you have for me to do? That's what it takes. To walk in power, you need to have a regular communication with the Father. The second one, we must communicate with each other into the world as children of God. Our words must convey forgiveness, grace, love, and affirm our identity. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. It says this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. In other words, do not talk down to people. Lift people up. Doesn't matter what their conditions are in life. Lift them up. And, you know, I do part-time, I do part-time driving for Lyft, which is kind of like Uber for y'all that don't know. But sometimes I pick up strippers who go to the strip club. I have to build them up. My responsibility is to build them up, to talk to them and let them know that they are children of God if they decide to be. That they have the rights to have the access to call God their fathers if they believe that Jesus is Lord. So I have to lift them up. I have to build them up. Their situation doesn't look like something that would be glorifying. But we have a responsibility. I had a responsibility to make sure that when they got out of the car, that my job was to lift them up. That they would know the name of Yahweh. And that God has called him to be a, come, to be a part of what he is doing. They don't have to go to the strip club. So you got you to gotta look for opportunities to pray with someone. One of my goals this upcoming week is to pray with more people. When you pray with somebody, believe it or not, when you pray with somebody and they're unsaved, that's the doorway for salvation. Hearts are ready. When you pray with somebody, when they're going through something, it's an opportunity for you to communicate the word of God to them, to let them know that, hey, you know what? This prayer is good, but it will have much more of an effect if you become his child. So understand that you have the authority to speak life to someone's circumstances. Remember, the mission is to proclaim the name of Yahweh as salvation. Number three. We talked about carry yourselves as sons of God and your motives and actions. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. 
This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Got two more scriptures. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. You don't have to go there. I'll read it. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Philippians chapter 4, verse 89. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, which is Christ. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. We have to live and act as sons of God in our, in our motives, in our actions, so that this world will see the glory of Yahweh. It's through us that he's doing these things. If we do anything contrary, what we are doing is profaning, profaning the name of Yahweh, which needs to be glorified, which needs to be edified, which needs to be lifted up so that he will draw all men onto him. That is our call as believers, as children of God, as sons of God, this is how we exercise our identity in him. Amen. So this concludes my message for the day. I thank you for taking out the time to listen.